Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dawood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And I'm Mike Mason. Yes, we have Mike with us. Mike is co-author of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition and line editor for the Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu line. Welcome, Mike. Hello. And Mike is joining us for a special episode called The Many Faces of Cthulhu. And we're going to be discussing the various play styles that people use in the game. But before that, Mike. (laughs) Yeah. What's going on at Chaosium, Mike? Oh, all sorts. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. And why is it called Chaosium? Oh, no, I I got that sort of story told to me at Gen Con. Anybody think it might have something to do with chaos? Well, it's to do with the Colosseum. It's a sports arena, yeah, isn't sports it? Yeah, sports arena. Um, called the Colosseum. Because there was just so much chaos going around in Greg's life at that time, it was a very manic period. He literally just put the two together. chaos That was it. So, Mike, what's happening at Chaosium? Uh, we've recently uh, announced the uh, Time to Harvest uh, organised play campaign that will be going off around the world uh, very soon. Uh, people can sign up to join the Cult of Chaos and uh, get that campaign for free and uh, run it in uh, gaming stores, libraries, colleges, even at home and obviously online as well. Um, we're also just push- putting the finishing touches to the revised version or the, the re um, laid out and lots of new art and full colour version of Doors to Darkness which is a scenario anthology particularly for beginning keepers uh, which is a, a range of scenarios uh, which is looking very nice lots of lovely colour art in there we announced earlier in the year we're opening up a, a European distribution centre so customers can order their books directly from Chaosium without having to pay the massive shipping fees from the US so they'll be able to order books from our site but get them delivered internally in Europe so that will save a a lot on postage, and we've got a big container of uh, back catalogue and new books and whatnot on their way to that um, distribution centre right now. So that distribution centre handles all that, does it? It kind of like it gets the orders in, yeah. We'll, electronically we'll you know, people, and... yeah, they will uh, put the order through on our on our site, and then you know we'll obviously send the uh, distribution information to the centre, and they uh, then ship it out directly to the customers' home. All oh, right, so that's cool. cool. So you don't have to like have an employee there, kind of putting things in boxes. It's all just kind of automated. It's, or... Yeah, there's yeah. A fulfillment centre, I guess, is the best way to describe that. Yeah, and the the cold, was it cold harvest? Is that it? Have I got that right? No, time uh, to harvest. Time to harvest. Time to harvest. So that's like I know I asked you this on Facebook this week because I kept saying organised play, and everybody seemed to know what that was, and I was like, what actually does that mean? It's like a play test, and anybody can just write in and, and join up it's less of a play, i mean playtest is a part of it uh it, but it's it is i mean it is a fully written and finished campaign i mean effectively organized play just means that we are doing it in a, an organized fashion in so much as we are providing the campaign on a monthly basis so every month uh, the keepers that sign up will get a new chapter in the scenario and they're all episodic and they all follow on in a, in a linear progression, keepers are able to run that. It's, it obviously it promotes the game and promotes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know... And uh, potentially gets new players gets in, Gets right? new pe- players yeah. in or people wanting to come back into, uh, into Call of Cthulhu or ne- never tried it before or people new into role-playing, perhaps. 
what we encourage our Cult of Chaos members is to go and, you know, talk to their local friendly gaming store or find a venue or, or you know, go online, recruit some people and uh, and then run the campaign with them in a, in a regular basis. And that's free of charge to people? And, it'd be, or? and it's free of charge. And, and you can, anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you are. You can anywhere in the them. world, anywhere in the world. All people okay. need to do is to sign up before the deadline for the campaign, which is all on the uh, Chaosium website and uh, register for the Cult of Chaos, and then they'll be invited if they want to take part in the campaign. They can register for that and uh, then be sent the information. Okay, and then they can go online and share their experiences or ask questions and things yes, like that. Yes, yeah, I mean, we'll, on the uh, BRP Central Forum, which is Chaosium's official kind of forum online, we'll create special boards for this campaign. So we'll have a player board, so players can talk generally about what they've done but also there'll be a, a keeper only version where keepers can actually share you know tips and hints of how they've played it or what they're doing or ask for advice and that will we'll support that as we go through so would you need to be an experienced keeper i mean if you had got your home group and you wanted to run run it for them but you hadn't really played much clue could would that be something you could join in on and kind of get advice on how to to run the game and yeah so absolutely particularly this campaign because it is a um a, a narrow focus campaign and there's lots of advice written into into the actual scenarios of how to run them or things you can do with them. That actually, if it's if you've never run a campaign before, it's actually a really good kind of introduction to do that. You know, it is particularly you know would work very well for either new keepers or a bunch of new players. But equally, it's um, you know a, a, an experienced uh, keeper and experienced players will still find a lot of fun in the campaign because obviously it's a new thing, and uh, it's it's a cool uh, you know mystery and adventure and lots of action packed stuff to to get involved in. But I can see the appeal in that partly just being the fact that you can share that experience with other people online, and you know because you can go on forums and ask, oh you know I'm running Tatters of the King or whatever, uh, is anybody got advice for what to do in this chapter? And yeah, one or two people will chip in, but but the fact that lots of people around the world are running the same thing for their Groups, yeah, around the uh, same time in the same month. Yes, is uh, quite significant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so you know, hope it'll um, that kind of like inter-game kind of conversation will will take place, and that would be really cool. Before we move on to our main topic, it's time for the Lovecraftian word of the week. And now. The Lovecraftian Word of the Week. And this week our word is writhing. An adjective. Make twisting bodily movements as in pain or struggle. Again, my, how I get out of bed most mornings. Or moving with a twisting or contorted motion. Suffering emotional or physical distress, as from embarrassment or anguish. Hmm. Scott's nodding knowingly there. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I'm not sure that this is necessarily a word that people would immediately associate with Lovecraft, but it's one he used an awful lot. It's one he used an awful lot evocatively. Things in his stories tend to move in unnatural ways. This sort of ties in with our use of the word tentacle. Yes, I was thinking that. I mean, writhing just has a sound of kind of wrongness about it, doesn't it? Anything that's writhing is a bit wrong. It's an automatically repellent word. Yes. I know that a particular Cthulhu project um, on Kickstarter used the the term, uh, the writhing dark, and as mentioned a while back... That's where they did a short story collection, which is where one of my pieces in there got turned into a short graphic novel. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. The, the Writhing Dark, that's uh, yeah, immediately the name that springs to mind. 
I guess mammals don't really writhe, do they? Not not unless they're in pain yeah. or maybe ecstasy, but they they don't they don't writhe. That's snakes and creepy things and nothing against snakes, but yeah, I'm desperately trying to just throw you examples of people, listeners out there. <laughs> We're nothing against snakes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think of examples of mammals that do writhe, and yeah, I, th- I think you're pretty much right there. Yes, one does not normally writhe. But let's take a look at some things that do writhe in the works of H.P. Lovecraft. From Neartholotep, a sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that are not hands, and whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotten creation, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low. And from Herbert West, Reanimator. For that very fresh body, at last writhing into full and terrifying consciousness with eyes dilated at the memory of its last scene on earth, threw out its frantic hands in a life and death struggle with the air and suddenly collapsing into a second and final dissolution from which there could be no return, screamed out the cry that will ring eternally in my aching brain. Help! Keep off, you cursed little toehead fiend! Keep that damn needle away from me! And from the colour out of space. They were twitching morbidly and spasmodically, clawing in convulsive and epileptic madness at the moonlit clouds, scratching impotently in the noxious air, as if jerked by some alien and bodiless line of linkage, with subterranean horrors writhing and struggling below the black roots. And finally, from the shadow out of time. Then, superimposed upon these pictures, were frightful momentary flashes of a non-visual consciousness involving desperate struggles, arriving free from clutching tentacles of whistling wind, an insane bat-like flight through half-solid air, a feverish burrowing through the cyclone-whipped dark, and a wild stumbling and scrambling over fallen masonry. Now, our main topic, the many faces of Cthulhu. What do we mean when we talk about the many faces of Cthulhu? Well, specifically, we're talking about the fact that Call of Cthulhu, as a game, seems to be quite unusually versatile. Uh, for a game that is very much supposedly about you know, Lovecraft and the mythos and investigation, I've seen it used personally in lots of different ways by different keepers and groups. We've seen some discussions or been involved with some discussions on social media where people have talked about the different expectations they have from Call of Cthulhu, the different things that they bring to their games. It really kind of brought home the fact that it it is a very different game to different people. And we just thought it might be interesting to have a discussion about what some of these different things are. You say about it reflecting the source material... Well, it's a game based around H.P. Lovecraft stories, which are almost singularly hard to emulate in a role-playing yes. game. So you kind of get almost everything but a Lovecraft story, because <laughs> playing a Lovecraft story, you'd be a kind of passive observer that went mad and nothing really happened. Yeah, it's, it's a very, in very difficult thing to pull off. It depends on what aspect of Lovecraft stories you're talking about, because I think Call of Cthulhu does capture certain aspects of Lovecraft, but not 
literally every aspect. Yeah. I think if you're talking about Call of Cthulhu, the story, and the Dunwich Horror. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Ones that we've about. featured yeah. in, in the books. But, yeah. Um, it sort of does those. But, I mean, think of the music of Eric Zahn. I mean, you're not going to be playing the narrator in that. No. You know, there's some mad guy upstairs playing the violin. I sit in my room and listen to him. Mm. <laughs> well, okay, give me a roll. Yeah, yeah you, absolutely. No, you failed your listen roll. You can't hear him. <laughs> this is because you've been moved two stairs down by the landlord. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, yeah, you pass your roll and then you get moved two floors down. <laughs> Great. It's kind of hard to encapsulate some of those things into a game at all, I would say. Yeah. So, um, but, but there are plenty of other things we can put into games, and Call of Cthulhu does. And there are lots of different play styles. We'll try to you know, summarise a few of them. Of course, there's going to be drift and overlap between them. Some of them may you know, be very similar to each other, but I, I think we can probably pin down a few very specific examples. Uh, what this isn't going to be, it really is a look at different subgenres or genres, but it's more about the types of Call of Cthulhu games that people play. It's a, it's a subtle difference, it's a nice difference, but we'll, we'll explore a bit more about what we mean uh, by that uh, as we discuss it. Well, there were two particular discussions that, that sparked this off. One was a thread on Yog sothoth a little while back, which boiled down to uh, how much horror do you put in your Call of Cthulhu games? Which struck me at first blush as being a very weird question to ask. Because to me, Call of Cthulhu has always been first and foremost a horror game. But, you know, some of the responses came out of that. People were talking about how, to them, it was more of an investigative experience. Uh, for a lot of people, the, the horror was almost a light dusting that you put on, on the scenario, as opposed to the core of it. Paul, you brought up another example. One of our listeners on G+, I think it was, posted... I'm probably going to butcher your name, so my apologies for any mispronunciation, but Jacek Brzezowski? He's referring to the cult Kickstarter that uh, our good friend Matt here has posted about on the blog and backed. Indeed. Uh, he says, It looks very good, but as with World of Darkness, but are dark games like this actually fun to play? He mentions here that he ran the final revelation for Trail of Cthulhu recently with the emphasis on darkness and creepiness. He says it was successful, but it became very tiring after a while, this ominous, dark feel. I mean, I don't know what kind of deviant would write a game like that. Did no, I don't know either. Scott? <laughs> no. I think I, our, our own Scott Dawood wrote this, right? I wrote the framing scenario You wrote for the it. grim bit for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, as opposed to all the light, cheerful stuff in the rest of the book. <laughs> but he says he likes the atmosphere. I think that the darkness of the atmosphere appeals, but is there any fun in these games, like yeah. there is in Call of Cthulhu. Now, that's kind of interesting that people perceive that they should be fun in Call of Cthulhu. Well, they should be fun, and there is fun, but it's kind of dark and horrific with fun. Yeah, and, and again, I think it depends an awful lot. I mean, this is something that we'll get into when we move on to the main topic. The final revelation isn't hugely different from the way I, I run some Call of Cthulhu games. There's nothing I'd say inherently about Call of Cthulhu that makes it any lighter. With the final revelation, or at least the flame, framing scenario, I was trying to write the grimmest, nastiest, most nihilistic Cthulhu scenario I could. 
you know, from the feedback that I've I've had from playtesters and so on, I succeeded to the point where I actually put a lot of people off the game. <laughs> I would certainly sometimes take exactly the same approach to doing that in Call of Cthulhu. The fact that it was written for Trail of Cthulhu makes it no difference in this case. But having played in your game, Scott, I mean, often there is humour. It's, it's kind of dark humour. But often humour kind of comes out of that. Yes. Um, as a kind of break in the tension and, and, and so on. And it kind of complements the horrors we talked about before. I would say in quite a lot of the published Call of Cthulhu material, Mike, what would you say? There's there's a kind of an accepted style that there is some humour in there. So if you look at the, the NPC skills, often there are humorous ones built into that. Yeah, I think, yeah, historically that is, that's certainly been the case. And there's an implicit understanding, I think, in that it's understood that this is a pastime. It's a meant to be a it's meant to be an enjoyable, fun activity. So within that context, there is both light and dark. You know, you look at the the body of Call of Cthulhu scenarios that have been published over thirty years. Some are clearly darker than others. Some are clearly about horrific subject matter. Others are not really about horrific subject matter, but they are more about more akin to like the Call of Cthulhu, where they are about investigation and piecing together information to lead to some conclusion, which. You know, it may, may be horrific and unsettling or, or just, you know, a, a revelation of some kind. In publishing scenarios, you obviously you want to report uh, them to appeal to a broad base. A broad scenario can be adapted in the hands of a keeper in the direction or the style that they want to play. So a not very horrific scenario necessarily could actually become more horrific in the right hands of a, of a keeper. Equally, those who prefer more action-adventure would cert- lean to certain different scenarios or emphasize that in the you know around the gaming table i think when you look at films i mean most horror films i would say aren't relentlessly grim most of them have got humor in it might be the kind of humor that only horror fans would laugh at you know kind of really gory scenes or things like that but they're kind of maybe over the top you know there's funny references or just characters in there that are kind of humorous there are some that are relentlessly grim but i think they have to be very good to carry the the viewer through that. I do like that mix of horror and humour. But sometimes, you know, in a horror film or a horror scenario, I do want that unremitting darkness that will leave my soul feeling like a blackened cinder at the end. (laughs) Yeah, and I think you've got to understand that also Call of Cthulhu appeals to a wide age group. You know, you you can have a group of 13, 14, 15-year-old people playing this to a group of people in their 50s and 60s and beyond. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to make one size fits all is, is often quite difficult. But I think Call of Cthulhu does quite, has done that pretty well, actually, that people can take a scenario and adapt it to their needs. I think that's one of the signs of its widespread popularity because it actually can be a lots of different things to lots of different people using the same core material. Yeah, because sometimes people sort of talk about, oh, you know, this scenario is like 18 plus, you know, I can't have any younger people in the game. And I kind of think, well, yeah, you can. If you're running it, you just tone it down a little bit. Uh, absolutely. Because most of the things, there's very few actual core parts of scenarios that would break that, I think, that would that you Keep, couldn't, you know, yeah. that you couldn't just improvise and just tone down a little Keep, bit. Yeah, I suppose so. I'm talking about like yeah. 12, 13, 11, 12, 13-year-olds that you couldn't just... Yeah. Um, and or just a, present it in such a way mm-hmm. that it would be appropriate for that age group. Yeah, and I was understanding your playgroup, running the game that's appropriate to the people around your table, whether they're older, younger, 
they don't want certain things. You know, you may have already discussed about things that people find distasteful in their games. So they, they don't find it fun. Therefore, in a fun activity, they don't want it. And therefore, you know, there may be certain subject matter that will, won't come into your games on the table. Or they might be they might be referenced in a scenario that you, as you say, you modify, cut, change. It kind of requires the keeper to do some But it requires the keeper to do a little there, bit of editing there. But that's for specific needs, isn't it, yeah. in that regard? And, and not all groups are like that. You know, some groups are happy to have anything hit the table. Now, I had this instance, I may mention in a previous episode, come, back, uh, come up a couple of years ago at Dragon Meet when I found that I had a girl at the table that uh, her father had brought her along. She must have been no more than eight or nine. And that suddenly made me panic a bit, thinking, well, ah, what am I going to do? Mm. And just had to dial down the blueometer, as it were, so that they didn't use <laughs> colourful language and didn't uh, describe things in a particularly graphic way when they, uh, when they came up. Yeah. Personally, I find it very, very difficult to do that, just because... You swear every other sentence? Well, it's partly that and partly because, you know, when I'm GMing, I tend to improvise a lot and I tend to say whatever is, you know, going through my head as description. And I find it very difficult sometimes to tone that down. Uh, So as a result, I mean, that's why when I'm running convention games, I will always put 18 plus on there, just simply because... Yeah, I, I I don't think I should be trusted running games for children. I think you should have that certification tattooed on your forehead, Scott. <laughs> yeah. I just want to talk that. to people 18 plus. <laughs> yeah. But it does come, you know, it comes down to knowing, not only knowing your group, but knowing yourself. As, you know, Scott quite rightly said, I'm, I kind of understand the kind of games I run. I understand the kind of games I want to run and what I enjoy. Therefore, that's the kind of games I'm going to run and I'm going to, tell people that's the kind of game I'm going to run so I only really want people that want to play into that experience yeah. and you know and obviously other people are different and will come to it with a very different take to it to that Keeper heal thyself Well let's drill down a bit and take an overview of the different styles that we're talking about For the overview of different styles we've broken down play styles into eight different headings and we're just going to take a quick look at each of those and give a, a couple of examples to illustrate how they might play. Um, so one of the styles is quite a popular style really and we termed it here as classic investigative style which I guess you know for most people is the default mode for Call of Cthulhu um, particularly for campaign style play where there's a slow build-up and accumulation of information to, uh, to some form of revelation or great disaster perhaps. Um, so you have this slow build towards horror with fair, a fair amount of uh, clue hunting and gathering and, and uh, piecing together of information. You're definitely um, going to want to put points in library use in this game. Yeah, you want library use and uh, spot hidden skill, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it is, you know, games are focused around intrigue, information and, and mystery, detective style, I guess epitomised in, in the Call of Cthulhu story by Lovecraft, which is, you know, the collection of disparate information to lead to some, you know, revelation. Yeah, and this can be a very slow-burn type of game. Uh, it's, it's very methodical. It requires, I think, perhaps more player skill than some of the other ones, mm-hmm. in that, you know, it's not just the characters who are piecing together the clues, it's the players. And it often starts off as a mundane world setting, so it's very based in the real world. And then you slowly gather clues and start to get hints that all is not right. You know, a bit like Sherlock Holmes, but with supernatural and bits of the mythos slowly coming in. It's very much the onion skin approach. Yes, yes. Another mode that we've identified, this one I think is very apt for Paul 
and yeah, pretty much Scott as well, really. This seems to be a, a favoured mode of play, which we've termed weird or maybe existential horror. If anything, putting your players in a situation and then just saying, right, well, how do you deal with it? Yeah, this isn't so much about you know, trying to build up to the truth, you know, trying to gradually piece together what's going on. This is about being hit in the face or, you know, dumped in what's going on. I think it can be about finding out what's going on. It's also not realising that you don't know what's going on at yes. the outset. When we were thinking about fiction that, that mirrors this, we were sort of thinking, well, our old friend David Lynch. You know, I think that epitomises this style of play, and that's, that's something, if I could emulate that, then I'd be more than happy. It's a much more satisfying style of game to me personally. I like that feeling of being disorientated, of being confused, and of trying to piece things together, not having to go out hunting for clues, but just trying to make sense of a weird situation. Or, or at least maybe not even make sense. Maybe it's not even possible to it, make sense of it. I think what you're but, talking about is you actually you know, something is thrust upon you that you react to. Yeah. It's very much a reaction-based kind of yeah. scenario, I guess, in that sense. I mean, the other person I'd look to for this is Philip K. Dick, really. Mm. With oh, um, yes. strange setups that you think you know what's going on, you know, as in we can remember it for you wholesale or Blade Runner and so on. Yes, yeah, reality is not what you, what you think it is. And I'd say this is a style of game that's much more suited to one-shots. I, you, you could probably run campaigns along this line, but it's, it's much more about that, that brief, intense experience. And along those lines, you know, another one we identified is survival horror. I've certainly played in a fair number of Call of Cthulhu games which are like this. It's sort of a kissing cousin of what we just talked about with weird horror. But instead of it being reality not being what you think it is or you know, trying to deal with the weird, it's a much more visceral experience. You're being hunted by something, you're fighting for your life, you're put in a dangerous, deadly situation and you're using whatever tools you've got at your disposal to either try to get out of it or just simply survive. And it's another one that lends itself well to to, to one shots the scenario that embodies that the most for me that i've played or rather campaign that embodies that the most is escape from innsmouth mm. um mm. doing that escape from the town when when the ship hits the fan that that is very much survival horror mode yeah that's really good because it's usually like zombies that we think of when we think of survival horror but <laughs> the you know being in the heart of innsmouth when uh, that all hits off then uh, that that kind of mirrors that pretty well yeah deadlight as well the recent uh, one shot to, that came out is very much a kind of unknowable in an alien thing that's going to come and eat you basically and you've got to survive and uh it's very much a kind of you know there's not a lot of investigation to do that's quite minor it's about surviving as as the tagline says it's surviving a night of horror outside arkham exactly that yeah the fourth style is emotional impact these are stories that really drive towards getting an emotional response from the players Scott, you listed this one. Do you want to say a bit more about what your thoughts are there? Almost going back to what we started out talking about with the final revelation. So, I mean, with the final revelation, rather than it necessarily be... It's a very investigative scenario, but the purpose of it, you know, for me, wasn't the investigation. The purpose of it was to create this feeling of, of dread and despair and depression the realisation ultimately that everything is futile and, and you know, really ram home that feeling with the players. But whether or not you think that's a worthwhile thing to do in a game or whether it's a fun thing, 
I, I think it's quite a powerful one. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be, you know, feelings of fear or, or dread or angst that you're trying to do. I mean, you know, uh, trying to just stir up feelings of wonder or, or sadness or, you know, bittersweet memories and stuff like that. I think these are all very powerful things to do in a game. It's certainly possible to construct games that are based entirely around doing that. Well, I think moral choices comes into that of, of asking the players to make moral choices yeah. on behalf of their investigators because people are going to disagree about moral choices and scott you're very good at coming up with good strong moral dilemmas on the fly i mean that comes out in games like dogs in the vineyard when you've run that yeah. but also in you know you bring that to call of cthulhu and that kind of plays to people's emotions because there's a moral choice yeah. and you know you invested in the game and you feel like you want to do the right thing but if somebody else feels they want to do something... And it's not just about, oh, they're the cultists, we need to get rid of them. That's not really a moral choice. No. You, but you manage to present things that, that do play on that. Yeah, I, I, want, I want the players to go away from the table afterwards feeling that they've been through something, that they've, they, that they've experienced something. That they need psychiatric help. Yeah, exactly. It's kind yeah. of like Threads, a role-playing game. <laughs> why, why do you think I've run so much Hot War? I, exactly. <laughs> I, I was just thinking of a... You know, a, a published scenario that presents moral choices to players consistently. Uh, and I think probably the one that jumps to my mind is called uh, Harvest, which is set in Stalinist Russia. Uh, and the players um, are playing investigators who are effectively shades of grey. They can, you know, they can lean towards humanity or they could lean towards uh, the, the, the kind of the orders they have been given by their... Um, uh, Stalinist bosses, so they, they face some hard choices. Uh, whether do they follow orders? Do they disobey orders? Which would have an effect on their characters. You know, they would equally then be, you know, seen as criminals or you know, and whatnot. So uh, that one, that one strings to mind in that kind of where where you're faced with hard choices. Then there's the the ever popular kind of action adventure style. You know, again, it is quite a. Uh, I think a lot of people play this style. You know, some might consider it pulp, but it doesn't have to be pulp. Uh, but it certainly you know, encompasses that kind of style. So there's normally uh, plenty of combat, chases, um, dynamic kind of dramatic encounters with things happening. Uh, investigation is pretty minor. It would just, you know, you find a bit of a clue and that leads you to another event. It's a, a string of events that kind of build and build and build to some kind of epic climax, essentially. Yeah, Master of the Arthur being a pretty much prime example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a common element to feature in a game, even if you don't play that style all the time. I think you can possibly include the Dreamland setting in this kind of context. That is, mm. it's um, it is less about investigation in terms of the the book and library sense. Um, it is more about you know, journeying around and things happening and exploring this landscape. I mean, it, you know, it touches on that as well, I guess, to some degree. And talking of films, I was uh, discussing this with my daughter about the films we were watching while we were on holiday. And when we've talked about emotional impact and action adventure, we figure that just about, what do you guys think, about nine out of ten films for emotional impact feature some sort of reconciliation story between a father and son. <laughs> and also, nine out of ten films, action adventure, feature somebody hanging onto the edge of a window ledge or cliff or precipice and then slipping and somebody holding their hand, just, you know, hand <laughs> around wrist and physically then pulling them up. And we watched two or three films and you kind of wouldn't expect them to be in there, but both those things are in there. And <laughs> have you ever tried pulling somebody up? 
just by one arm. It'd be virtually impossible. No, no, I've just let them fall. Some of our listeners would do it, I'm sure. But, uh, there's, a, there's a scene in, I think it's Hellraiser 2, where that happens and just the skin comes off the hand oh, and yes. the uh, the body just falls. <laughs> and thinking, yep, that might be what, what would happen in real case. <laughs> that, that'd be Scott's take on that. On that <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. Now, one that's a favourite of mine, especially after watching films like Cabin in the Woods, which I will just sit and laugh at uh, with any repeated viewing because it's such such a fantastic film, is comedy horror. We've mentioned before that there's a line that can be very easily blurred between the two, that when you go from an extreme in one, it ends up falling into the other. And I've seen an awful lot of Call of Cthulhu games played like this. Even if they're not written to be comedic, people will find the laughs in them. And, you know, as we said before, it is a very natural release of tension. You get to a scary point and someone will make a joke to relieve the tension, everyone will laugh, and uh, you'll get these ebbs and flows within the game like that. Yeah. We had moments like that in Horror on the Orient Express, but that was probably because we, uh, we as players had some very dirty minds when certain, <laughs> certain things came up. <laughs> But, I mean, that said, I did try an experiment at a convention game some time back. I told the players ahead of time that this was, you know, an absolutely hopeless situation that they were in, that we were going to sort of play this as as a tragedy going towards destruction. For the first half of the game, you know, it was like a normal horror role-playing game. People would make jokes, there would be a bit of relief of tension. And there was, there was this point about halfway through where everyone suddenly clicked into the same mindset where they realised, you know, just how things were going to go. And the last half of this was, I mean, it was grim, it was horrific, it was tragic, it was moving... And no one laughed at any of it. And, you know, at the end of it, I mean, we're all just sitting there kind of in shocked silence uh, for, you know, a few minutes afterwards. And and I think everyone involved with that, I mean, we, you know, talked about it for ages afterwards as being the, the most intense game we were ever involved with. I think more than any other subset of these things that we're talking about, if you don't want comedy, you've got to discuss it and say, we're not playing this comedically. Yeah. I had an experience when I was running a game um, with the Cult Keepers. I was running the scenario, just getting into it. Obviously, it's a con game. There's a bunch of players I don't know. And one of them was interacting with an NPC in a newspaper office. And I kind of make the NPC like a bit of light relief, comedic. And this player is very straight-faced. says, well, I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I was kind of saw me afterwards and... Did he give me a report? Issue card a complaint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but actually, to be fair, that happens a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> all the time, yeah. But actually, I kind of like that. I kind of thought, oh, no, actually, he wants a serious game. Yeah. And, and it, I kind of got the feeling the rest of the players did as well. So that was a, a kick to me, really, to sort of say, actually, we want a more serious game. And, yeah, good on him. That was, I yeah. had the reverse of that at a UK Gen Con years ago. I was running what I thought was a really quite dark you know, no winnable, it's no, an unwinnable scenario. There's no way they were going to survive this scenario. But a couple of the characters were actually police officers. And it just so happens that the players around the table, uh, the two people playing the police officers were brothers in real life. And they just hit the ball rolling as if they were playing an episode of The Bill. <laughs> and it just descended into the most funny game I've ever played but with the most serious subject matter, but they all, they all, as a group of players, decided that's how they wanted to play it. And so I was kind of forced, I was trying to <laughs> fight them initially, but that, and then I just gave up and went with it. And then actually, we actually really had a fantastic game. But 
it wasn't my intention or anything. But again, sometimes you come to the table with the intention in your head, but actually everyone else around the table has got a different intention. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can build an understanding of, you know, well, what's best for everyone? Well, let's go with that then. You know, sometimes you've got to do that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, even I'd say for groups of people who play together regularly, they're not always going to play one kind of game. Well, actually, I'd say they probably are going to play one kind of game. So they get into that groove and probably... As I can imagine for quite a few groups, their games all tend to have a similar feel. But if they consciously stop and discuss it and say, OK, tonight we're going to play a very serious game or tonight, you know, and consciously decide to play a different style of game, I can see they, they could do and enjoy it. But if they don't do that, they may just fall into the same groove again and again. Yeah, and I think there's a danger. Well, not so much a danger, yeah. but I think this is sometimes where the perception becomes about well, you're not playing the same game as I am. You know, when you meet somebody at a convention and you've been playing the same game for the last 30 years, but actually when you discuss it, you realise, your game sounds nothing like it. Well, that's how <laughs> I play it. And it, and it's almost, if you get into that kind of groove, of some kind, you know, you don't realise, you just enjoy, this is how we play it. This is how we enjoy it. We enjoy the comedy and action of the of Call of Cthulhu. And you meet somebody who's very, in, you know, run, uh, likes to run Comedy and quite, action, what are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> well, some serious in investigations that lead to quite dark horror. Yeah. Uh, potentially quite worlds away but yeah it's kind of fun to mix them up isn't it yeah yeah sorry I'm, I'm still trying to get past what paul was saying a few moments ago which sounded like almost like a cosmopolitan advice column for for gamers you know I, I talk to your group about how to how to mix things up at the gaming table try new things together yeah have you tried role play <laughs> <laughs> did i say that i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> So we sort of touched upon this a little bit in the action-adventure uh, segment, but uh, another one we pinned down was exploration. So I, uh, this is where the game is much less about you know, investigating something and much more about exploring it. You, usually a geographical area, wandering around, you know, seeing what's there. It's something that's maybe more commonly associated with things like you know, wilderness games of Dungeons & Dragons. It comes up in a few different Cthulhu games. Like I know it comes up in Tatters of the King, especially. Yeah, that chapter set in Tibet, I think. Yeah, it goes into Tibet. It's very much just a travel experience. You know, you guide through players through it, but there's there's a big chunk there where the players are fairly passive, and you're just kind of telling the story of your journey through, which is a very different style of play to the others. When we talk about exploration, we're not talking about exploring tombs of a pyramid with with mummies coming out and that kind of exciting exploration. We're talking about a more passive, you know, more like riding on the top deck of the tour bus and taking in, you know, a tour of Arkham, really. I mean, Fearful Passages is is an old scenario collection that details probably closest to that, where it's scenarios that you can throw in when you're taking long voyages between places in lots of different formats, whether it be by air, whether it be by sea, by land, blah, blah, blah. Um, Trail of Cthulhu does it as well more recently with Mythos Expeditions. So it definitely, it's something that's been not exploited, that's probably the wrong word for it, but it's definitely something that's been well used. I mean, this to me speaks of pacing, really. If you, if you like kind of a, a slower-paced game, this might be a style that you'd, you'd adopt. You know, about immersing yourself in the setting and experiencing, interacting with NPCs. Yeah. You, yeah. May, you may just have explained why it's my least favourite out of all of these, because I, I, I much prefer pacey games, and this is much mm. more about the, the laid-back approach. Which, mm. Yeah, I think you've got to be yeah. careful with this yeah. style of game as well, is that the, that the players don't become passengers all the time. 
to what effectively could be a, a monologue from the keeper for mm. three hours or four hours. Another good example of this is Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Some parts of that. Oh God, yeah, of course. Yeah. I'd, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd definitely just you know the exploration and the experience. Mm. This style of exploration kind of is accounted for by people's real interest in the minutiae of kind of historic detail as well. So the, yeah. the the people that really like getting into you know the the period detail um, and trying to emulate you know what it was actually like in that period they're probably very strongly yeah. drawn to this oh, oh absolutely but again i would always preface that by saying um as long as everyone around the table is having has a good the same time. level of interest in having a good time because yeah. it's a very good way of somebody who's very much into pacer games like scott falling asleep basically he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't want to know how to make pemmican <laughs> yeah but but this works both ways. I mean, you know, I may be running a game which is, you know, absolute balls-to-the-wall action or bloodshed from beginning to end, and there might be someone sitting there hating every minute of it because they wanted the time to sit there and explore their character, absolutely. and I'm just making them run for their lives. Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. It's, it's all about balance and context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the final one is a generic style of play which uses the Call of Cthulhu system but kind of unplugs the, the mythos and horror, and it's just a, using the Call of Cthulhu game as a set of rules for running whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I put this one in because I, I regularly see on places like RPG Net and Reddit someone coming up with a question saying, you know, I want to run, you know, for example, a you know, very realistic spy game set in the 1960s. What system should I use? And almost invariably, someone will pipe up and say, you know, use Call of Cthulhu. You know, don't bother with the sanity system. Use everything else. You know, it will fit. I, I've, I've done it. Running for my regular group over the years, um, someone suggests, I won't say what it is, but they suggested a particular game where we all wanted to do it, but we knew that, unfortunately, the system was a bit broken. It, it, it hadn't really ever been successfully pulled together. But we really loved the setting, and we all kind of wanted to play it. So I just, well, I'll run it. I'll, we'll just use Call of Cthulhu. And so I just did a little bit of homework to figure it out. Um, but we, we ran a very successful campaign. It was sort of science fiction-based using Call of Cthulhu, but without any mythos or any of the trappings of Call of Cthulhu, just as a system. So, yeah, I completely get that and understand that. And now we discuss how these styles find themselves at the gaming table. You know, as I said at the top of this segment, this isn't meant to be a complete list of all the different play styles. All we're really trying to do here is explore the fact that Call of Cthulhu is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. As Mike said earlier, you do get these culture shock moments when different Call of Cthulhu GMs or players meet and it's sort of, well, hang on, that's what your Call of Cthulhu game is like? Maybe this is something that Mike and Paul can speak about a bit more. In this day and age of very kind of focused mechanical games, games which have got mechanical support for particular play styles and push towards particular play styles. It strikes me that, I mean, for all the updating that 7th edition did, that Call of Cthulhu is at its heart really quite an old set of mechanics and comes from a day when there wasn't this mechanical focus. You can see that as a good thing or a bad thing, but what it does mean is that it's... It's open-ended and versatile enough that you can you can do almost anything with it. I think yeah, it, 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 you can accept that the rules are a broad church. They 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 allow for many different styles and uses, um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it, it continues to be a popular system and a popular game. 
So what factors come together to make the play style at the table? I was interested in this. Are we talking about GMing style or are we talking about player style? Or, you know, is it scenario design? What, but what's coming out is kind of the dynamic at the table, really. I'd say it's a bit of a combination of most of those. But for me, the way I view the topic, it's the scenario structure and the scenario theme itself. Because you're not pigeonholing it into a particular subgenre, but it revolves around the style of the story more than anything else. But if you sit down with two players who want to play it comedically, you're kind of stuck with that, aren't you? Yeah, true. I think I mean, you, you can try and lever them out of it. I think that's probably what you intend, what you start off as, what you want as a keeper when you run the game, and then how it ends up being at the table will probably be two very different things. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think the experience at the table is probably actually the more important one. If I wrote a, a scenario that I ran myself at a convention and gave it to each one of you, the players playing it, you know, even if it were the same group of players, would probably have very different experiences. Yeah. In your case, Matt, it might turn out to be a more investigative thing, and Paul might play out the, the weirder aspects of it. You know, I might leave everyone shuddering at the end. Mm. <laughs> uh, and um, that's regardless yeah. of whatever you give them to run. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to pin down what your particular quirks are, Mike. But um, bit of everything, I guess. <laughs> Depends on my mood. I do try and accommodate what the mood of the group is. Hmm. I always want to kind of play dark nihilistic horror. In my head, that's what I want to play. But most of the time, people want to have more fun than that. Yeah, if you can see people aren't enjoying that, you push I, 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 I've always been pretty old school about the fact that you know, my job as a keeper is to ensure that the players go away thinking they just had a great game. I don't want to force what I think is going to be a great game on them necessarily. I mean, obviously... You try and do that. I mean, obviously, in certain scenarios, work better to do this than others. And obviously, again, it depends on who you attract to the table, how you attract them. And we talk about two different things. I'm predominantly talking about the kind of convention-style play where you don't know your players and that. And obviously, your play group, your home group, let's say, if it's like mine, you've accumulated players over the years. Even then, you don't really get a say in what they want to do. They, they, they all come with their own intentions, and you try and hone and craft them down so you can maybe route. pitch something to them and say this game yeah, is going to be more and gritty and or whatever or do you want a more yes. lighter game or yeah more? and then you you know you could so you can vary things up and try different styles and you know mm. but you know as scott has said you know it's you know some groups just don't want to play dark nihilistic horror every day every week of the year you know they yeah. do want to change of things and you've got to accommodate that and also, I think groups of like-minded players will tend to gravitate uh, together. So that's not always going to be the case. You know, it depends what the pool of players is like in your area. I know that there are certainly people I will play with a lot more than others because we tend to want the same kinds of things out of games. Mm-hmm. You may end up with the occasional person in there who is, you know, not quite on the same wavelength as everyone else, or you know, is just there playing it because this is the only game in town. But I think on the whole, even if you're not playing the same kind of game over and over again, you will get a lot of the same beats out of stuff. You'll get you know, variations on a, on a theme. So a few minutes ago, I hypothetically said what would happen if I wrote a scenario and gave it to each of you. Paul and Mike in particular, you have had this experience for real with the Cult of Keepers, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. When the Cult of Keepers was, you know, active, every keeper in the Cult of Keepers wrote a scenario or would write scenarios, and so they would predominantly be running their own scenarios. But very often, particularly at larger conventions like Gen Con, just to have a break from their own stuff, they would, you know, 
play other people's scenarios, but particularly um, the one that really comes to mind is what this, the, the single scenario that, that kind of everyone ran is the uh, Gatsby and the Great Race, which Paul, Paul uh, obviously put together. And that was interesting to me because I'd, I'd written it. I knew how I ran it, but I also got to hear about how other keepers ran it, you know, ran the same scenario at the same time. And because there was there was some sort of crossover there, you could actually learn about how it was going in parallel. So there was my mode of running it. And then there was another keeper, you know, Matt, not, not our Matt here, but he would always run it in a very, a much quicker paced. A little more action orientated rather than investigative, perhaps. Yeah. And some other keepers were, were kind of sedately paced. Yeah, kind of more, um, more kind of like, I guess, middle of the road in the sense of it had a little bit of everything, but not not one thing particularly. You know, it was like, yeah. you know, we'll just see what happens. We'll just, yeah, and the kind of the deadliness of the scenario, the seriousness of the scenario, the pace of the scenario, all those things. I guess it's like giving a piece of music to a musician and, and you know, letting them play it. Everybody's got their own style and they'll play it differently. It's almost like covers of a of a, of a track. Mm. Um, people will take that same track and play it in their style. It's interesting it's seeing I mean, that happen. The, yeah, I mean the other the other interesting thing was I noticed with the Cult of Keepers was, um, say for instance, um, Paul, you'd written a scenario, let's say, and um, Mike Lay uh, or Kiri uh, were going to also run that scenario, but maybe the day after at the convention that they might actually sit and play in the scenario first with you or just sit and watch for a while to just see how you were running it. And not necessarily to try and emulate your style, but to just get a gist of how, how the scenario runs and, 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 and then take what they've seen you do and maybe they incorporate elements of that in their game. And, and it was quite you know, this kind of blend approach that would, uh, you know, but, but, is, but stems from you know, observing other keepers running things, which is always a useful it is, a, it is a useful experience being able to sit in with somebody who's written the scenario and is an experienced GM, watch them run it as a player, and then you know you kind of learn a bit from that, but then you go and play, do it yourself. It's a bit like being a teacher and you've, you've learned this stuff, but then when you stand in front of a class of students and you actually teach it, you realise, damn, how well do I know this stuff? Because I've actually got to demonstrate it now and I've actually got to explain it to someone else. Yeah, um, yeah I think you know if you want to improve your GMing skills and that's uh, that's a good way to do it if you've got the facility to do that. One thing I realised we didn't do is we, we launched straight into talking about the Cult of Keepers without ever explaining what the Cult of Keepers was. Mike, you used to run it. Tell us what the Cult of Keepers actually was. Uh, well, the Cult of Keepers was a group of Call of Cthulhu keepers and scenario writers who, um, I guess initially, kind of were hand-picked by me as people I'd seen at conventions or kind of knew through when I was publishing The Whisperer, the Call of Cthulhu fanzine, and sort of bringing people, you know, could I get a group of people at a convention to run lots and lots of Cthulhu? Because basically, my end goal was just to have lots of games of Cthulhu, because in my head at the beginning, it was like, oh, I could play in them, that would be really cool. <laughs> but actually, that didn't happen. I just seemed to be running stuff or organising things. Yeah, the Cult of Keepers was uh, a bunch of, um, you know, experienced uh, GMs, um, and um, the majority were experienced or or developing their their scenario writing abilities and, and honing them through the very process of each year writing more scenarios and running them and getting other people to run them, getting feedback on them. 
and uh, and uh, developing that way. So that's pretty much what it was. We just was to go to conventions and run the games. And quite a lot of published Call of Cthulhu uh, scenario writers ended up coming out of the Cult of Keepers. Yeah, we. In, yeah. in fact, you ended up doing uh, what was it, the first Cthulhu Britannica book between you. Yeah. Uh, so Cubicle you know, seven. people like obviously Paul here, uh, Mike Lay, Kiri Birch, M- Matt Nixon, who's in um, one of your. Books come out, yeah, isn't he, yeah, yeah. He's uh, done, done some stuff oh. through Bob or Cthulhu London book and um, the Cold War book. Um, some say more briefly than others, uh, but everyone kind of you know did their part, and um, yeah, it was good. There was a pressure, definitely. I don't know if you were aware of it, Mike, but you would sort of decide that we needed, say, maybe four or five scenarios because you'd have each person that had written the scenario would, would run their own. But you didn't want too many scenarios, so there was a feeling that I certainly had that they had to be up to scratch. So there was a real pressure to kind of make them as good as I could because I was going to submit them to you and you were going to decide which scenarios were going to be run at that convention. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and I mean, that, it was a, kind of an unintentional kind of make sure everyone did their best, I guess. But it was, I guess, an unintentionally, certainly at first. I started the UK Call of Cthulhu UK Nationals tournament uh, and the Call to Keepers kind of initially ran that. You know, we needed a small set of scenarios um, that could be run repeatedly for different groups and have different keepers running the same one. And so that kind of probably is where that stemmed from initially. Yeah, but, and you uh, have like prize support from prize Chaosium support from and Chaosium so on. to do yeah. that. And uh, yeah, and that, that used to work very well. And let's wrap things up with some final thoughts. To wrap things up, what is it that we think makes Call of Cthulhu such a versatile game? We talked about the mechanical aspects of it, but you know the fact that it it, it does seem to be so many different things to different people. I mean, what is it do you think that makes it so? I think it's I think it is versatile because it's a broad system. It accommodates many different things within it. It allows you to do virtually anything because it emu- it tries to emulate in a not too intrusive way, allowing people to do anything, which is what a role-playing game is about, really. It's allowing characters a freedom of, a, of expression, and the rules accommodate that. I mean, it came about at a time when there weren't many role-playing games in which you played characters in the 20th century. Well, you know, that's yeah. where it, that it allowed you to really. play real people. It allowed you to play... Bob, who works down at the gas station, or Emily, who is a teacher, or Jim, the private eye. And yes, they can be big, colourful, and almost, you know, um, I don't know, pulp characters or, 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 or stereotypical kind of. But what they were films. pitted against was up to you. Was, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be Cthulhu rising from Relay, or it could just be some serial killer at the end of the street. Which I think is another thing that makes it so versatile is that the mythos that it draws from being set in the worlds of H.P. Lovecraft is so vast, not just what he created, but all those that have added to it since, Mm. that you can tell so many different stories, that it's not just tentacled horrors. It can be abstract. It can be menacing. It can be quite personal. And each of those angles creates its own different tone and style of game. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a good point because the fiction that's come out of uh, Lovecraft's work since then, the, the people who've built on his legacy, have taken you know, the, the mythos in all sorts of interesting directions. And, you know, the things that we've talked about in terms of action and comedy and nihilism and, and so on, I mean, these are all reflected in the source fiction anyway. In a lot of cases, 
people taking the influence of what they've read and bringing this to the table, taking the influence of the horror films they've seen and bringing those to the table. Horror as a genre is a very broad church, as we've discussed in other episodes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by, by definition, you know, Call of Cthulhu as a horror game is equally broad. So I think, you know, if you parallel it with a game like Cult, Cult's got a very strong background, right? Yes. Which is going to be revealed through play. I think Call of Cthulhu, there is that background, but it's very it's very disparate, it's very kind of undefined. It's yeah. not a it's not a strong background. It's not a straitjacket. It no. allows you to define it, you you're given the pieces, but then how you choose to put them on the board in terms of in the scenarios and in the games you play is entirely up to you. There's not a collected wisdom in terms of this is the canon, you cannot stray from it. Yes. This is, you know, this action must happen before this can happen. None of that is in place unless you want it to be. I, I've often told people that I really dislike playing licensed games because I don't want to be straightjacketed by a canon. And it did occur to me that, you know, Call of Cthulhu is a licensed game. But, yeah, and it is the only licensed game I like. And it is exactly that. It's the fact that, you know, there is no real canon to it. I think the other thing I would want to add is that I think Call of Cthulhu is an easy game to come to if you've never role-played before. Because you're playing normal people. You don't have to say, oh, you're playing a paladin or a ranger. Well, what's one of them? Mm. I don't understand. What's that? No, you're playing a private eye. Uh Or you're playing a librarian or... And so it's very accessible. And also the kind of the the very human condition of there's something scary here. Everyone can immediately identify with what that means. There's not you know, you're not looking for the lost amulet of Argonarg, you know, with no one and well, what's it like? You know. No, you 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 are there's a dark shape down at the end of the room, what are you doing? It's a human natural emotion of fear that you can relate to. I said earlier, I'm not sure this is 100% true about it being the first modern-day horror role-playing game. Do we think that's right or not? I don't know if it was the first horror game, but it, yeah, it was certainly amongst the first. Yeah. It seems a strange choice to pick for your choice of role-playing game to publish. You know, one based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Nowadays, it, he's pretty popular and there's there's lots of, you know, Lovecraft stuff and Cthulhu memes and stuff online. Yeah, so, but in you know, 1981... It, 1981... Yeah. Things weren't like that. That also may sort of tie in with the versatility, which is, you know, if it was one of the first horror role-playing games, or it was certainly most people's first horror role-playing game, that even if they weren't Lovecraft aficionados, if they came to wanting to do, you know, a horror game inspired by whatever they'd read or seen, then they'd use Call of Cthulhu for that because it was the horror role-playing game. And as a result, almost immediately from the word go, it branched out into all sorts of different directions. Well, I think that's enough of styles of play for this week. So it's a nihilistic goodnight from me. A blood-drenched cheerio from me. An investigative farewell from me. And don't forget to come back next week for an action-packed another adventure of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias! Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Ha, <laughs>